and welcome to Climate Change on Trial. I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Fela McAleer. This is a daily podcast from inside the defamation trial of writer and broadcaster Mark Stein. Stein is being sued for defamation by climate scientist Professor Michael Mann. Stein described Mann's famous hockey stick graph as a fraud. Mann is also suing writer Rand Simberg, who made similar comments. We're presenting this podcast in a very special way by having actors reenact court transcripts verbatim so you get the most exciting exchanges from the court each day. Welcome to Climate Change on Trial, day 13. Man and God. So we flew through the proceedings today. It was actually interesting in many ways. And then there was a dramatic development at the end, which we will call Stalkergate, (laughs) which you know very little about, Anne. Yes, because it happened after you left. Oh, okay. Because I... actually, it's more—it's both Stockergate and Harassment Gate. Right. So okay. we will we will come to that at the end. So stay tuned. To it the was end. a really really busy day. We had five separate people gave evidence in the morning, um, though three of those were presented to the court by video deposition. They had previously given depositions, and rather than subpoena them to come to court, and funny, I think in civil. Proceedings, a subpoena only has a geographical power. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, I remember that from the Kevin Spacey, that you can depose anyone anywhere in America, but to subpoena them, they have to be within 150 miles of the proceedings, some weird law like that. So they were deposed and the jury heard extracts from those depositions. They're under oath, but I think they're less impressive if it's it's a video. Yes. Um, Today, we think, is the last... Yes, today is, in fact, today turned out to be the last day of testimony before closing statements by the three by the two defendants and the plaintiff and the judge will give jury instructions yeah so we'll have the close it'll be very dramatic tomorrow we're going to have the closing statements from Rand Simberg from Mark Stein and I suppose from you know the, yeah. pla- the, 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 the plaintiffs are going to have to say something yes, as well John Williams no doubt will get to heal up his game because I think he got really outshone in the opening statements by Mark Stein mm-hmm. so I'd say we'll get lots of rhetoric from John Williams tomorrow, yeah I think tomorrow is going to be very very dramatic can I just say something we might even have a verdict tomorrow. I yeah. The I, I spoke to I spoke to some of the council today. Some of the people I'm not going to identify who I spoke yes. to, and said like, "What's the story?" You know, uh, and that individual said it'll be Thursday. And by the way, film just given the history of this case so far, things don't move very quickly. And we had a lot of not moving very quickly today as well. Even though we heard a lot of evidence today, we had a lot of objections. We had an enormous amount of these, what they call put on the husher, as Phelan was saying, he learned the name of that today. They put the husher on. White noise. White noise, which is really, really awful. And for those of you who don't know what it's like, people of a certain age will remember when you had those old TVs and they would make that I don't know. I can't do it. I can't do the noise. Dreadful noise. And actually, maybe our maybe our editor in Ireland actually um, will be able to do yes. that. Actually, because it's a well it's a well known yes. sound. Ed- it's ed- horrible. Editor ed- in Ireland, give us two seconds of white noise. Anyway, so that, desperate. So, yes. So the first video deposition we got was out of Eugene Wall. He's a paleoclimate scientist who has worked with man, and he also was famous for, as we'll hear after McKittrick and McIntyre produced a paper criticising and critiquing man's hockey stick graph. And just to explain, the hockey stick graph is the graph that showed a thousand years of flat temperatures, then a a catastrophic rise for the Industrial Revolution. McKittrick and McIntyre said it had serious faults and flaws. 
Eugene Wall was one of the people who produced a paper that said, actually, no, McKittrick and McIntyre are wrong, man is right. But that wasn't what he was talking about today. His testimony spoke about emails that he deleted. Very, very, very interesting. And this was kind of in the context of ClimateGate. Um, mm-hmm. And it was in the context of the Penn Inquiry, yes. which had four, you know, four questions that it had to answer. And we're going to get to that, but, but it, it, it's really... It's really interesting and really important. So he deleted the emails based on an email he got from Mann. So that's important. Um, he sounds he sounded off like an interesting character, right? And yes, I, I at the beginning I have to say I really warm to him. I mean, I always warm to people who who admit and and say that they are religious and that the religious part of their life is very very important to them. And he started with that. Very interesting. He had a very very interesting CV. I really perked up. I was like, this is really interesting, science guy. And then he turns up that he went uh, and studied divinity. Yes, yes. In fact, he's an ordained Episcopal priest who quote felt a call to holy orders, but in the context of being an academic, close quote, which sounds amazing. And he talked about the Jesuits. He talked about the Jesuits. He talked about the Augustin- Augustinians. Augustinians. There you go. Yes. So, yeah. Um, so, so, yes, he felt a call to holy orders and then he became a climatologist. And I suppose the question is, who would win his church, his God, or his church of climatology, his church of the environmentalism? And I personally felt a little bit sad watching him this is at the end of his academic and religious career that he admitted, you know, to worshipping, I felt, the church of climatology rather than the church of doing the right thing. So, yeah, I have to say I, I, it was really shocking. It was it was incredibly shocking because deleting emails, you know, this is it, it was bad. It was really bad. And given the context where he had spoken about his faith and all of that, it didn't it didn't work. It didn't work at all. Yes. Um, but let's move to this. Yeah. So the emails asking scientists to delete their emails came from Phil Jones, who was part of the climate gate furore. And he sent it to Michael Mann. And then apparently they had a phone call, which Wall says he can't really remember the details. So let's play the video testimony of Wall, Eugene Wall, uh, being questioned by Rand Simberg's lawyer, Mark Delaquil. This is the actual video testimony that the jury heard. Have you ever discussed this email with Dr. Mann? Two or three days after I received the email, I um, needed to talk with Dr. Mann for some of the science material that we referred to earlier. I don't remember exactly which. And um, I asked him at that, that, that time, do you know any context to this? Because I didn't have any context. And as I said, I had actually completely skipped over the subject line. Otherwise, it would have been obvious to me. And um, um, so I asked him that question. And what did he say? He said some kind of uh, criticism was happening uh, for the faculty there, these members at the University of East Anglia. That was all he said. Did he ask you not to delete the emails? He said nothing about the emails in terms of deletion one way or another. Did he say that the only reason he sent this information, this email was for your information? Um, not to my knowledge. He didn't say that in that conversation. The only thing I remember him saying is that he, uh, um, that there was criticism. Did anyone else ever reach out to you and ask you to delete emails concerning the IPCC fourth assessment report? No. The only communication that you received from it was from Dr. Mann, correct? It was this forward without comment. That was it. 
And how did you destroy the documents? I simply highlighted them and deleted them. Do you remember how many emails you destroyed? I do not. Did you tell anyone that you deleted the emails around the time you did it? Not to my recollection. Have you ever told anyone that you deleted the emails? Other yes, I, yes, I did. Would you have deleted those emails if Dr. Mann did not forward you this email? If I had never received the email? Correct. Uh, I would never have known anything about it. I would not have deleted the emails. So I think it's really worth kind of reading this out in full. So to understand, this is an email from Phil Jones to Michael Mann, which he forwards to Eugene Wall. And this is what it says. Mike, can you delete any emails you may have had with Keith re-a-or-4? Keith will do likewise. He's not in at the moment, minor family crisis. Can you also email Gene and get him to do the same? I don't have his new email address. We'll be getting Casper to do likewise. I see that CA claim they discovered the 1945 problem in the nature paper. Cheers, Phil. So, to me, this was, I found this really disturbing, by the way. This is basically, you know, you don't delete emails, by the way. And everyone knows you don't delete emails. And you don't delete work emails. And you certainly don't delete emails to do with science mm -hmm. that is going to have such a massive, significant effect across the world. This yes. is trillions of dollars, by the way. Yes. And is possibly, and, you know, people froze to death in Texas. Yeah, when Texas went for the, the windmills as opposed to, and the electrification, and they had a cold snap, people died because the, the state wasn't capable of generating electricity, generating heat. But just to make it clear, Phil Jones was under severe pressure because of climate gate in East Anglia. He was asking everyone to delete, and he, he asked Michael Mann to forward it to Gene, i.e. Eugene Wall, and Michael Mann did that. And, and Eugene Wall, as you just heard, is this guy who you know, went to divinity school. Uh, it, it, I'm sorry, I it have stinks. to say, it stinks. It, it, it's particularly stinky of somebody who has that kind of background. I mean, altogether, this testimony showed there was a lot of shady things going on in climate science. And Mann was doing everything he could to keep data and his methods secret. Then we had Hank Foley's oh video. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. We heard yesterday about Hank uh, from Alan Scaroni, um, the Penn State Administrator on the inquiry investigating Dr. Mann. He said Foley, who was the head of that committee, somehow changed his mind about censoring Mann after he had had a talk with then Penn State President Graham Spanier. Now, Spanier eventually served time in prison for covering up football coaches Jerry Sandusky's abuse of children. The Stein-Simberg articles made this very point, that if Spanier had intervened and covered up for a child abuser like Sandusky, why wouldn't they cover up for a star climate scientist like Mann, who had committed much less serious wrongdoings? So Foley, uh, Hank Foley, is a career administrator who'd spent a couple of years at Penn State as vice president of research and dean of graduate studies. So in 2010, in the wake of the Climate Gate emails, Penn State was investigating if man might be guilty of any scientific misconduct. And strangely, the investigation flipped at the end from wanting to censure man for his behaviour to clearing him. Within a very short period of time, um, and we talked about this yesterday, that, you know, what had happened in the meantime, we, we know what had happened in the meantime. Well, let's hear them. Stein and Simberg's lawyers wanted to know, so let's hear them question Hank Foley 
And, uh, you know, the first person they talk about is an email to, to Yekel. That is another member of the committee. So let's hear them ask Hank Foley, what caused the flip? That uh, appears to be an email from you dated January 25th at 8.50 in the morning to Ms. Yekel, uh, Mr. Scaroni with a copy to counsel. Um, and it appears to be a summary of where the inquiry investigation is in your mind as of that date. Is that correct? Give me a second, please. Yes, it says it right in the first sentence. Okay. And you wrote this document, correct? Yes, I did. And this was um, your summing up based on the various meetings and exchange of information among the committee members? Yes. The first three allegations, I believe the majority of us agree that we have found nothing to suggest that Dr. Mann is guilty. But we cannot prove that he is not guilty. They say a majority of us. Uh, was it not unanimous? Um, you know, I don't recall why I use that term. I don't recall that we talked about unanimity or the like. We, um, there were reservations, there were subtleties that were discussed in all of this. I spent quite a bit of time on this with counsel. Um, so majority may not have been the best use of the word because it implies a numerical uh, concept and I'm not sure that's really what I meant, but let's take it for what it is. So yes, there was probably some lingering discomfort with uh, saying that we couldn't find anything in the first three. Then the second sentence, mm -hmm. that paragraph, you mm -hmm. write, however, it would be hard for us to have ever discovered the kind of data that would prove his guilt or his innocence. For yes. these reasons, we would set aside allegations one to three as indeterminate. Now, what did you mean by the phrase indeterminate? I think it's self-evident. It means that um, it would be very hard for us to prove the person, I hate to use the word guilty or not guilty, but for lack of sufficiency, I will. It would be hard for us to find either way. Um, we would have to have almost the powers of the Federal Bureau of Investigation to dig deeply enough to, uh, to really have uh, thoroughly investigated and ultimately adjudicate some of the uh, synthesized allegations that Dr. Pell had written. Let me phrase it this way. Um, yeah. In your mind, is indeterminate the same as an exoneration? It is not. What is the difference? Determinate could be an exoneration or the opposite. But this was just fuzzy, very hard to really feel that we could determine one way or the other. There we are. He's at, at this stage, he's at the indeterminate uh, idea. And, uh, but he, then he's, he's thinking he also wanted to censure man. And here's Foley saying why he initially felt man deserved censure. You say you favored censure. Why did you feel 
that censure would be appropriate of Dr. Manning? Well, it, it's kind of irrelevant what I felt because it turns out that uh, upon advice of counsel, we couldn't do that. We had to do one or the other. We either had to drop it or go forward. Can you explain to us what uh, conduct of Dr. Mann you felt was appropriate for censure? Uh, I thought that some of the emails that went back and forth uh, describing some of the people who did not see things the way he saw them and some of the emails that talked about uh, strategies for publishing uh, were uh, frankly uh, worthy of censure. Could you expand on that? Give us a little bit more detail. You seem to have a good recollection of those issues. I, I really don't. What I remember is that I thought that the tenor of the emails and the wording of the emails uh, undermined, uh, undermined the social faith in scientists and how they conduct themselves. How? How? Read the emails. Well, what is it about the emails that struck you uh, that way? Well, I think that they were uh, emails that you would not expect from people uh, who are high-minded and scientifically inclined. Were they nasty? Yes, they were snarky. Did they involve ad hominem attacks on people? As I recall, I think they did. Did you regard them as an overreaction on a man's part to criticism of his work? No, I don't recall that. I just thought that they were ill-advised and uh, embarrassing. Embarrassing because it showed Professor Mann in a bad light? Uh, I think that they, they were not just casting Michael Mann in a bad light, but I thought it cast the other climate scientists he was working with in a bad light. Let's be clear, censure at this stage in Mann's career would have been fatal. Mm -hmm. There would be no yeah. Michael Mann now if he'd been censured then. And by the way, it could have been fatal for Penn State mm. after the football scandal. Yeah, and, and, then, then, and then the climate, yeah, their, their star climate scientist also. So Foley, one of the reasons he thinks that Mann should have been censured was what Mark Stein said in his opening statement, that man had said worse about people on Twitter. He can give it, but he can't take it. And that is actually one of Mark Stein's defences, that this man has called people a white supremacist. This man has spread vile smears about people. He's destroyed people's careers. We'll hear more about that later. But if you listen to yesterday's episode, you know how the report turned out. Spanier weighed in with a proposed list of changes, like a massive list yes. of changes. Foley said they were, quote, I love yeah, this, suggestions. suggestions. But during a crisis, when the university president writes you a 10 bullet points uh, to, on how to fix the most controversial investigation in the university, then I think we all know it's an order, not a suggestion. And then the investigation was essentially dropped and man was cleared. 
it, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's it's shocking, and I you know I think we're going to talk about that later about what Richard Lindzen said, for example, about this. Really shocking because there were the four charges, and particularly with the deletion of emails, where the proof was there. There was yeah. no need. You know, it was like, yeah, you don't need to investigate that much because it's actually it's all there in black and, and white. it's in black and white. Exactly. So then the defence played a small portion of Graham Spanier's deposition, and the it was amazing to me. I was expecting to see Graham Spanier in the stripy pajamas or whatever, given the fact that you know he had spent some time in prison, but he was there I, in his fancy suit. I think they have yellow jumpsuits in Pennsylvania, actually. Well, it was yellow jumpsuits when we interviewed. Was it? One Gosnell, Kermit Kermit Gosnell, abortion doctor who's serving three life sentences for murdering babies. We we interviewed him in prison, yeah. yeah. So just to remind you, Spanier is is the former president of Penn State who went to prison for child endangerment for covering up. Now, in the deposition, he had a very poor memory of this case saying many, many times he'd no recollection of yeah, what... I meant to go back and actually count up how many times he said, I don't recall, I don't recall, or recollection problems. But he did, and he looked shifty. He, You know, there was a n- some number of times that he really shifted on the seat. He, yeah. he wasn't a happy camper because, well, as we know, he had plenty to be very, very, very uncomfortable about. Yeah, the deposition took place just a few months before he went to jail for the child endangerment. Uh, let's see if his explanation for rewriting the report holds up. This is not a reenactment. This is actually video of Graham Spanier's 2020 deposition. So let's listen to that now. Well, did you look at any of the evidence that was being considered by the inquiry committee? I did not look at any evidence because I was not involved in the investigation. Uh, the only involvement I appear to have had was after the investigation was completed and I was being asked to give advice on the clarity and precision uh, of the report. Well, if we go back to exhibit 29, which is the email from uh, Dr. Foley to yourself, all it says in the message to you is for your information. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, it it doesn't ask for your advice or editing, does it? The email does not ask for my advice or editing. Uh, does it ask for any comment by you? No. And in fact, the inquiry uh, being conducted uh, was confidential, was it not? Yes. What was interesting there was that the email was sent from Foley to Spanier and, and Foley said basically, you know, for your attention or for your, you know, yes. what for did he your say? Information. For your information. Yeah, for your information. He didn't say, could you give me advice? Could you give me a comment? Could you, you know, rehash, write a draft? Could you correct my draft? Could you make six? No, he didn't ask anything of that. But what he got back in return was these 10 points, very detailed. Well, well, 10 bullet points. Actually, I, I, I misrepresent Spanier's dedication to advice because it was 10 bullet points and then a couple of thick paragraphs at the end. So he may call it advice, uh, he may call it assistance with editing, but it's an order. Sorry, the whole thing stinks to high heaven. I mean, this guy, this was meant to be an independent investigation. Mm-hmm. You're, no one was meant to be informed in the uh, executive at Penn State. And I'm being very careful to say that for all of you guys who are writing to me telling me not, not to confuse the two colleges that are obviously have a big rivalry. Um, 
you know, the, he was not meant to be involved at all. And here's what's actually happening. What's actually happening is that you have the president rewriting the report. And within days of his suggestions, which I think were a lot more than suggestions, the whole tenor of the conclusions change. Yes. We lose censure. Censure is gone. And really, what you get instead is complete exoneration. Yeah. So after Spanier's video testimony, there were two in-person testimonies. Uh, the first came from Roger Pelkey Jr. He is a very highly credentialed academic and he came across as very friendly and personable. I have to say, you know, if we're going to do my crushes now, I've kind of slightly moved on. Mm. <laughs> slightly moved on to Roger Pilkey Jr. Very, very impressive. Um, very highly credentialed, as Phelan said. He's been to all the, you know, colleges. He's um, teaches at Boulder, you know, um, and very concerned about the environment, by the way. I like his path to where he is because he's got a PhD in political science, actually. So he's interested in science and policy, which, again, leaves him as a slight outsider. And they tried to make that... Man's side tried to make that something out of that, but he was very he was very capable of bouncing that back. But let's hear him to describe his life story and how he ended up where he is. Your full name for the record? Roger Pilkey Jr. What is your master's degree in? Master in Public Policy and PhD in Political Science from the University of Colorado Boulder. So you have a PhD in political science. You're not a climate scientist. Correct. You do climate change research? Yes, I do. I grew up with worldwide famous atmospheric scientists. My dad was one. I thought I would follow in his footsteps. I had a chance to come to Washington, D.C., and I got to see scientists interacting with policymakers and decided that's where the action is. That's where I want to be. So I got a degree in what's called science technology policy. After you received your Ph.D., what did you do next? I became a postdoctoral research assistant at a place called the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. I worked on extreme weather events and disasters for eight years. Then I was recruited to the joint faculty of the University of Colorado Boulder, where I started up a center on science and technology policy, and I've been there for 23 years. What are your areas of specialty? They're all where science meets politics. I do a lot of work on making sense of the complicated relationship between science and politics. I also have a well-known book called The Honest Broker. I've also done work on disasters and climate change. I focus on science advice to the government. I was fortunate enough to interview, at the time, all the living science advisors to former U.S. presidents dating back to John Kennedy. I did a book on that, and I've worked a lot on climate policy. I have a book called The Climate Fix, which got a lot of attention. Do you teach classes at the University of Colorado on these subjects? Yes, I teach in these areas. Just interesting to say about Pilkey, and I think a lot of our listeners will probably, you know, quite a few of them, I think, are very, very knowledgeable in this area and will know that Pilkey is from a very impressive stable. His family have all kinds of fabulous people, and I think his father was particularly interesting in this area, in mm -hmm. the atmospheric sciences. So he has a very, very interesting uh, yeah. background. But he has also worked as a grant reviewer. This became a very significant well, piece of information. Well, of course it did, because it's really Michael Mann's claim to damages is that he had three in his reviewed claim he claimed that he had 3.3 million in the four years before these articles and 500,000 in the four years afterwards a huge drop now he also misled the court 
by showing the jury that one of the grants that he lost out on had been $9 million, $9 million which then was revised down to $112,000. We've mentioned that before. Yeah. And that continues to be an issue that has not been resolved yes. in the court. The judge still has to speak to that yeah. because it may well be a possibility that the whole grant issue might be thrown out because of the contamination of the jury with this incorrect information. Incorrect information, by the way, that the plaintiffs knew was incorrect yes. when they presented it. However, we're going to assume that the grant issue is still an issue and it is still Michael Mann's best chance of getting any money or damages out of this case. So the Pilkey has worked as a grant reviewer and Mann's lawyers jumped up when they saw this was going to be an objection, but they were allowed to um, continue crossing Pilkey, Rand Simberg's lawyer was, and he was asked, would you ever take into account a random blog post like the one by Mark Stein or like the one by Rand Stenberg? Would you ever take them into account when considering giving a proposal a grant? And, and this is what he said, and this is his exact phraseology. He said, if anyone were to assert when I was participating that some external factor was considered, that would be a big scandal for the National Science Foundation or NOAA. Science isn't perfect but it's extremely robust against external influences. And that was really saying, well, and of course, that's a part of the point. Michael Mann has never produced any evidence that Simberg and Stein's articles damage his grant gathering abilities. He's claiming it. And yeah. here we have Roger Pilkey Jr. saying it would not happen. And he also testified to Mann's tireless persecution of him and anyone who doesn't stand 100% with Mann. He made two points. He talked about, you know, in the external world, if you like, out there in the in the Twitter world and in blogs and whatever, Mann attacks people. But he does an awful lot behind the scenes. Yes. Let's go to that part of his testimony. And this is reenacted by actors. Did you have occasion to observe the plaintiff, Dr. Mann, and his participation in the public debate on climate science during the period 2004 to 2014? Yes. How would you characterize his participation? Thin-skinned, quick to attack, often seeking conflict, seeking to pick fights with people, and often it would go from not just, I disagree with you and here's why, but you're evil or bad and you deserve no place in the debate. And, unfortunately, sometimes Michael Mann would go beyond just a public comment, name-calling to take actions behind the scenes against people he disagreed with. Can you expand on that? Give us examples of some of the attacks you're referring to? I can personally cite several of them. I think it was 2011 when Twitter was invented, and Michael Mann had been an avid tweeter. You can log in any time of day and his tweets will show up. And he called me a carnival barker called me a climate denier. He called me a preparer of disinformation. The attacks are not just your science is wrong and here's why, but you're a bad person, an evil person, and don't deserve to be part of the debate. The persecution just went on and on and on. Including and, some of, and, yeah, and some of it's got the most intemperate language, and we're going to hear that. We're not going to say it here. We're going to let the actors do this. Yes, but, and, and, and we're going to do it on a bridge, you know, without any bleeps. I think we're going to run this exactly as it happened. So people with sensitive ears might like to, you know, walk away, or if you have children listening, maybe, Well, you know. and I think it's very important for grown-ups to realise that this is the way that these people speak in academia if somebody disagrees with them. Let's listen to this now. Dr. Pilkey, if we could go to your tweet, can you explain what you were saying in your tweet? Yes, I was commenting on a paper that was put out, as I often do, that talks about historical hurricane trends, an area that I normally cover, and commenting on the fact that the paper talked about model trends, and a lot of work I do is actually observe trends. 
I was commenting that the Washington Post unfortunately confused those factors and they called that gross misinformation and put it out on Twitter. Why did you say this is absolutely amazing and somewhat sad? I do a lot of commentary on how the media represents climate science and there's a lot of confusion out there, particularly when it comes to extreme weather events. And it's somewhat sad that I guess it's a sign of times that the media doesn't do better when we talk about science. So it's kind of a normal thing in my wheelhouse that I tweet about. Dr. Pilkey, if we can look at Michael Mann's tweet, can you explain what's in this tweet? Yes, there's a few things in there. One, he says he's talking about me, Pilkey Jr., saying, shut the fuck up, which I guess means shut the fuck up. Then gets personal and says, I don't understand science and says it's about purveying soft denial and climate inaction. It's quite often for Michael Mann to try to impugn the motives of people he disagrees with. He does this to me all the time by saying, you're against climate action, which is false. I wrote a book 15 years ago called The Climate Fix and did the first dissertation on climate science and policy in 1994. So again, it's false information spread about me. So a real charmer, really. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but then... Michael Mann went on to get to a different, yeah, to a uh, to a different level. I, I, you know, this this reminded me an awful lot of the moment where Judith Curry recounted the day her life was ended by Michael Mann in a way. Her academic career, um, which was going stratospherically, mm. was completely upended. And this is a very similar situation. So Pilkey tells us the story about how he would write for the website 538 and Mann organised a coordinated attack that wound up getting Pilkey fired from 538. Let's just, hear that right now. Just for disagreeing, by the way, with, with his climate findings. So let's hear it. 538 is a data analytics platform founded by Nate Silver, known for election forecasts and sports analytics. He asked me to join him as a writer soon after my congressional testimony. At the time, Michael Mann joined with the Center of American Progress to contact Nate Silver at 538 and demand that I be fired from writing. Less than a month later, I lost that position, and Media Matters for America wrote about the incident and me. How did that impact your career? That had a profound impact on my career at the time. The idea of a leading climate scientist leading the charge to have me removed as a writer and Nate Silver giving into the demands led to a lot of lost opportunities. Less than a year later, I was being investigated by a representative from Arizona who accused me of giving my testimony before the Senate because I was receiving money under the table from fossil fuel companies, which is false. My university went through the investigation and of course, I'd never taken any money from fossil fuel companies, but the assertion itself was enough to pretty much end my career in climate science for a time and I started doing other work for about four years. As we said, very reminiscent of Judith Curry's evidence. And I think, I think the jury, I mean, the science is tough to follow. And sometimes some of the scientists are tough to follow. But this very personal thing of being attacked on Twitter or being smeared, uh, sleeping your way to the top or getting you fired from your job. I think the jury, that resonates with the jury. I think, yeah, I think there's two things going on here. As I said, it, there's the public attack, which at least you see it. But then, you know, as we saw with the case of Pilkey Jr., he, you know, where he's basically saying he discovered, you know, after the event, he discovered that in the background, behind the scenes, you have Michael Mann devoting an enormous amount of time to destroying someone's life. And what's amazing about that is 
that Michael Mann is supposed to be, you know, so engaged in this climate crisis. My God, he devotes an awful lot of time to destroying people. I, I wish he'd spend a bit more time in, at his science yes. and a bit less time trying to destroy people who disagree with him. Yeah, I mean, uh, when does he have the time to do the science? One part of the day I particularly enjoyed was the cross-examination uh, of Roger Pilkey Jr. John Williams, uh, who who I think is still smarting from being accused of presenting fake documents to the jury. He's not on the best of form. He tried to say that Pilkey had no proof that man was behind the takedown of him from 538. But that opened the door for Pilkey to say exactly what he knew. Yes. And it really, really backfired. Yeah, it was very powerful. This because, you know, he'd have been better off not saying it because then Pilkey could, it would just be this conspiracy theory of Pilkey. This is really classic. I mean, let's hear why, how, in fact, Pilkey discovered what had happened. Let's, let's go to that. Let's talk about 538. You mentioned Dr. Mann was responsible for you getting fired from the publication 538. Is that correct? Not exactly correct. Do you want me to explain? Let me ask you this so we can save a little time. Did you testify in your deposition that you were dropped from 538 and never knew why? At the time, I didn't know why. I was in the Hillary Clinton WikiLeaks email release, and the Center for American Progress claimed, which Michael Mann went with, to demand I be fired. They had an email in there where they said they took responsibility. They said without us, Roger Pilkey would still be writing for 538. So in 2014, I had no idea. Somebody calls me up and says you're in the WikiLeaks. So damn, yes, I did learn later why that happened. It's interesting that man's emails have been revealed in not one but two major email yes. leaks. But actually, you know what? If you are a bleep hole on email, and if you're a bully and if you persecute people and you smear people, I mean, most people's emails wouldn't be of interest to anyone to leak. But when you're this... Vitriolic and vitriolic, vindictive and bullying. Un, unprofessional. And, yeah. Um, also, and then try and take the moral high ground. People will leak your emails and people will be interested in your leaked emails. So Ross McKittrick took the stand next. He's a Canadian economist who worked with Steve McIntyre on the paper criticising the hockey stick graph, which we've mentioned before. Their paper appeared in the same peer-reviewed journal where the original hockey stick appeared. And we interviewed him in our documentary, Not Evil is Wrong, which I do believe is free to watch online. As an economist, he said it was unlikely that man could have gotten the iconic hockey stick shape by chance. And like Wiener, he was invited up to give a lesson on why the hockey stick shape is wrong statistically. This was fascinating. And I want to just do a little shout out here. I know one of the days in the last week I promised to put up links to these graphs that are being shown in the court. Please forgive us. We're working these kind of 14-hour days. I promise you we're going to put up all these as soon as we get a minute because they really are fascinating. And particularly what he put up today, I thought was fascinating. Actually, let's put it up on Twitter tomorrow, on the Anne McElhenney Twitter page. On my Yeah, on the Anne McElhenney Twitter page, then we'll put up these. We'll, we'll do it tonight. So McKittrick used a standard statistical calculation and found that you would get a hockey stick graph 15% of the time using the figures that he had, but a pronounced hockey stick only 1% of the time. Uh, however, if you used the data method, the data transformation method that man did, he said you got a hockey stick 99% of the time. So it's not the data that gives you the hockey stick. It was 
the data transformation, the statistical trick, to use a word, that got you the hockey stick. He concluded that man used a data method predisposed to creating hockey sticks. It was very, very impressive what he did, actually, and the way he showed it. it. It was basically, you know, as we say, he used this statistical method that, you know, if you put the phone book, uh, younger people don't know what I'm talking about. But if you put the <laughs> so fo- random numbers. So if you put random numbers in or you put in man's numbers in, you'd get a similar result. And, and he showed that. It was a very strong visual for, for the jury. And then McKittrick continued on a familiar theme when he was asked about man's reputation. You know, and he described man as unpleasant, quote, combative and bullying. And he said that was his reputation both before and after Simberg and Stein's posts. So, I mean, how many times can you be told that man is a deeply unpleasant Mm-hmm. Who, gi- who gives it but can't take it. Well, you know, I thought, I mean, and it came up again, I mean, Bradley's name came up again today, actually, and I hope, I, I think we should get to talking about that at the, at the end. But Bradley, as you might remember, really early on when Bradley was on the stand, he was f- shown an email he had sent to Michael Mann back in the day saying, you need to really stop with the way that you talk about people and you need to really clean up your act because it's a disgrace, really, to the profession in a way. Yes. Um, and I thought that was quite, because that's like his body, like that's his close yes. body, was so Saying that, so it's not it's not us out here in the world saying that about him. His own closest friends say that about him. Yeah. So Patrick Coyne, for one of Man's many lawyers, uh, cross-examined McKittrick. You'll remember Patrick Coyne. He was the lawyer who body-checked me for daring to ask uh, Michael Mann some questions on the first day of the trial outside the courthouse. He started with the usual method of establishing that McKittrick is not a climate scientist. Even though he never said he was. Yes. Then he tried to cast McKittrick as an evil conservative and going against climate orthodoxy. Uh, and <laughs> by bringing in his opposition to Earth Hour... Oh, I thought that was really funny. It was like, you know, so McKittrick has, has you know, has, as many of us do, by the way, object strenuously to Earth Hour and that the idea that, you know, that electricity um, and, Heat, and, you know, th- so turning light. off the lights and turning off everything for an hour. And his he deeply objects to that, as many of us do. And we put on all the lights. Well, well let's hear what McKittrick... Yeah, let's... Uh, Hear that. Had written McKittrick. This is a quote. What McKittrick so said, he said. Yeah, here's what he said. I abhor Earth Hour. Abundant, cheap electricity has been the greatest source of human liberation in the 20th century. Everyone's material, social advance in the 20th century depended on the proliferation of inexpensive and reliable electricity. And you know, yeah. Round of applause from Did over here. Did you stand here. up in court? And, no, no, no but I was, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't agree with him more, by the way. And, uh, and, and nobody who is, has any rationality could possibly disagree with that. Yeah, but don't forget you're dealing with a DC jury who may not have that rationality. Yes, right? well, please God, you know. Yes, so Coyne, we feel Coyne did land some blows, actually, unusually. I, I feel funny. I felt that Stein and Simberg should have just ended their case after Judith Curry because when you're that high, why why take the chance? Coyne did land some blows uh, when it came to the criticisms of McKittrick and McIntyre's paper. But pay attention to where that criticism came from. Now, unfortunately, I don't think they brought this up in no, unfortunately re-examination. Not. But, let's, but, let's, but we'll bring it up. Let's, let's, he- listen to the, let's listen to this reenactment first and then we'll talk about it. This is McKittrick being questioned by Coyne. Do you recall that these criticisms that you mentioned to the jury today have all been reviewed in the peer-reviewed literature? They've been discussed, yes, in the peer-reviewed literature. Discussed at length, haven't they? Some. Not all of them. 
You were aware at the time when Wall and Amon published their papers in 2007? Yes. And you read them? Correct. And they summarized your criticisms of MBH 98 and 99, didn't they? Yes. You recall that they concluded that you were incorrect on all six of the criticisms that you had made, correct? They asserted that. You claim you got very close numbers, right? Yes. Some of the data tabulations they had were very close to what we had. But you drew very different conclusions from the same numbers, didn't you? I wouldn't say that. Table S1 in the main wall in Amman paper shows the same verification periods statistics that we showed and in fact confirmed what we had already found. You do recall that Wall and Amon looked at the MBH study in light of your criticisms, correct? Correct. And you do recall that Wall and Amon reported that MBH is robust against your proxy-based criticisms, correct? I don't recall the wording they used. They presented a whole bunch of recalculations, and in our view, they just recapitulated what we had already shown. Do you recall that Wall and Amon reported their reconstruction of MBH was not affected by the use or non-use of principal components in the North American portion of the dataset? That is not what they showed. They showed that you could still get a hockey stick shape using the man approach, but you had to change the inclusion rule for the principal components. Do you recall that they reported in their published paper that when all the proxy data is used, neither the centers that you discussed here today, nor the way the calculations were performed, affected the results? They showed that, again, if you change the principal component conclusion rule, yes, you could still get a hockey stick shape. Do you recall they addressed both criticisms of the R2 statistics, the PC centering, and the use of the PC proxy data? I recall they discussed them. And you were also a reviewer of the IPCC 2007 report, correct? Correct. And so was Mr. McIntyre, right? Correct. Do you recall that the IPCC in 2007 concluded that you were unable to replicate MBH 98? I don't recall that being the conclusion, but if they said that, we had already said as much in our own paper. I say, old chap, did you hear a name there? Oh, yes, I think I did, sir. I heard the name Wall being mentioned. And would, this is, would, would this be, would this, sir, would this be the same Wall? No, the, this Reverend, the Reverend Wall. This would be the Reverend Wall. This would be Eugene, Gene to his friends, Gene Wall, who, as you know, received an email which had been forwarded by Michael Mann. It had come from Phil Jones of the CRU in East Anglia, the Climate Research uh, Unit in uh, East Anglia, what? saying, well, delete everything. Can everyone delete everything? Get everyone to delete everything. And by the way, get Gene, as in, Eugene Wall to delete everything. And, and guess what we found out from Mr. Wall, Eugene, Gene Wall, Reverend to you, Wall. Reverend Wall to you. What did we learn about him today? We learned that he did delete the emails, deleted everything. And so no one's ever going to know what those emails said. Yes. Um, so the question is, how credible can his takedown, his analysis of the McKittrick McIntyre paper be? Because He's shown himself not to be scientifically rigorous, perhaps scientifically unethical, but also is his paper really scientifically objective because he's obviously shown that he will do anything 
to defend Michael Mann and defend the climate orthodoxy. Yep. All, um, he need, all he needs is an email. And he was asked today, you know, have you ever deleted emails before? He didn't believe he had. He doesn't remember that. Have you ever deleted emails since? He didn't remember doing that. And it's like, so it's a bit of a big deal, by the way. I mean, it's a huge deal. You know, somebody writes to you and says to you to delete emails. He did it. So that's who, that's who Michael Mann is. So then the rest of the afternoon was taken up with more testimony from Rand Simberg, Mark Stein's co-defendant. And I know he's been on the witness stand before, but that was when he was called by Michael Mann to defend himself. And now he was called by his own lawyer Mm -hmm. for initial softball questions. However, I felt with both Stein and Simberg, and by the way, Mark Stein was not in court today, Mm -hmm. and there were some comments about his health, so we're hoping that his health will have improved tomorrow for closing statements. But I felt, you know, Simberg's been up there. He's been on redirect, so he's given his soft answers. He's been cross-examined. Why put someone like Ransomberg, who's not a natural performer and not a natural communicator, why put him up there to get more more knocks. I mean, well, we had we had uh, Miss Miss Weatherford, my my girl crush, was was there, and what and what she did, and I think what she did establish, and what I hope did land with the jury was, she went through what he had read, what he had hyperlinked to, and what he had quoted in his article. That is the article that's in question in this court case, and you know, basically ran through an enormous number of articles that that informed his thinking when he went to write this article, including things from John O'Sullivan, things from our dear friend James Dellingpole, um, and and many, many others, and things from blog posts and and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And she went through that. It took a long time. She did that for basically for an hour. Um, And then we had Williams. So Williams then came to cross-examine Simberg. And we had nothing but objection, objection, objection. It went on and on and on. Everything. So he was trying in every possible way to discredit Simberg on the, on the stand and everything he tried, you know, got objected and most of the questions got withdrawn. One thing that did... I like the apology. I like the apology. The, uh, yeah, the apology was good. I mean, you know, basically at one point Williams said, you know, well, you never apologised. And he said, well, I, he never asked me for an apology. And, you know, there was something, and with this back and forth about the apology. And, and then at one point Simberg said, well, I have less reason now to apologise to him than even before. And, and Williams came back quickly and said, because he sued you? And he said, no, because I've learned more. Yes, I think we, uh, And I, think I, thought that was, I thought that was good. I think this, is, I don't think Michael Mann had heard of the Streisand effect. Mm-hmm. Um, What's now, that? What's that, Philip? That's when Barbara Streisand tried to get the internet to ban uh, the printing of her address and everyone then deliberately printed her address. <laughs> now, of course, the mainstream media are not reporting this trial or reporting it unfairly. If you want a good laugh, Go to NPR and look at their article today or yesterday. I can't remember when it appeared about the trial. It's a joke. It's, it's like they were at a different trial from the one we've been at. And by the way, they can listen to the transcripts on Climate Gate on Trial and if, 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 if they missed the trial. But no, they just did this. Michael Mann is being persecuted and it's terrible. Um, and they wrote a lot about it. But that is the end of today's show. And I want to tell everyone about Stalker Gate. Uh, you've heard of Climate Git and you heard, actually we heard today about Climate Git 2.0, which I had forgotten about. So I occasionally, outside the court, question Michael Mann about things that came out in court. I question other witnesses. I question Bradley and I question Bill Nye. And I questioned, actually I've asked Mark Stein questions outside the, the, the court as well. So 
I was standing in the courthouse today and I saw Michael Mann go out. So I waited for him to leave the courthouse because you're not allowed to ask questions or film inside the courthouse. I went outside. Sorry, I, I was standing there and they suddenly stopped and wandered down a corridor, not wanting to leave when I was there. And I'm, I said, I'll wait. So next thing they come over to a security guard and I see them in an animated conversation with a security guard. I'm looking, okay. And uh, so then they go to leave and as and I go after them because I'm, I'm going to go outside and ask them some questions. The security guard comes up and stands in between me and the door and says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going outside. And he says, you have to stop. And I said, I'm a journalist. And if you stop me doing my job, it's going to be very serious. And he goes, you're a journalist? <laughs> so they had told him oh. that I was stalking and harassing them. Oh, that I was committing these criminal offences of stalking and harassing. Wow. So he was sort of shook for a moment. I went past him and went down and started asking the questions, you know, do they regret giving the jury a fake document? Would they like to apologise to Judith Curry? That kind of thing. And uh, then I came back and the security guard comes over and says, I need to see your ID. And I said, well, for what reason? And he said, if you're a journalist, show me your ID. And I'm going, well, I don't have to show you my ID. I'm telling you I'm a journalist. I've been in there three weeks covering a court case. So then he got rather upset and said, I was stalking and harassing the people. And I said, well, I'm not stalking and harassing. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. And he said, I saw you. And I said, look, I have it on video, what, what happened there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I says, and I didn't even start recording until we got out. Then he tried to invent this thing where you're not allowed to film unless you're 10 yards from the court oh, yeah, or some, yeah. <laughs> some nonsense like this. I'm going, you're just making, I know I felt he's just making that up because we came out the other day, there's all these camera crews sitting by totally. the door, sitting 100%. by the door all the time. Yes. So this, this created a real problem because he basically implied that I would not be allowed into the courtroom tomorrow because I was stalking and harassing people. And I certainly wouldn't be allowed to wait for people in the foyer for them to leave. And I said, well, this is this is unacceptable. So I went and asked for a supervisor. Mm -hmm. supervisor. So then a supervisor came and I explained to him and I showed them my NUJ card from the UK. <laughs> and they, they went, okay, that's fine. I'm coming like, this is an NUJ card from the UK that actually has no jurisdiction here at all, right? Yes. And, you know, this is not China. You, you're not... The state does not license journalists, mm -hmm. right? Well, the DC does. And I'm going, yeah, but that's only for people working in DC. Like if Anderson Cooper comes down and covers a court case here, he doesn't have a DC court card, right? Yes. So this, I'm, I'm now a bit of a dilemma that if Williams tells the judge tomorrow that I was stalking him, hmm. this could be very serious. So I'm considering tonight writing a letter to the judge uh, explaining this and saying... He's already misled you several times saying I didn't identify myself, saying I pushed his lawyers when actually it was the other way around. But now we're getting into uh, DEFCON 4 accusing me of stalking and harassing. Uh, and I mean, literally, we are the literally the only journalists who have been inside that courtroom every day. And we are the only ones. Yeah, the odd person has turned up. Some NPR person turned up yesterday. They're here for a minute. None of them have been every day covering this unbelievably important court case. Yes. And this thing that of what Phelan does, you know, coming out of the courtroom, asking people questions, you know, awkward questions, inconvenient questions. Oh, yes. have I heard that before, by the way, Phelan? Inconvenient questions. You know, who doesn't know that that's what happens when you put yourself into the public domain? 
mean that people will ask you questions. Journalists can ask you questions. Yes. Anyone can ask it's, you it's questions, biggest, by the way. It's the biggest movie cliche on the planet. That's right, yeah. Yes. Like, we have been, we have been, how many movies have well, we... We've, well, yes, you were famously in a film, film where, yes, you, you played that very, you, that very role. And yes, in fact, I, 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 and I and you did it, too. I, I did too. You know, no, you know, no we, we both, had, it's a long, long story, but when we lived in Romania as journalists, we, there was a movie industry there and they were desperate for English-speaking people for bit parts. All they wanted was, was for journalists because it's, it's, in every movie there's journalists asking these awkward questions of, of people who don't want to answer questions. And I explained this to the security guard. Like, the very nature of our job is to turn up and ask people questions they don't probably don't want to answer and they don't want to see you now when they say i don't want to see you that's fine you, you know you can keep asking or if you're on their property you have to leave immediately but to mislead the security guard could have been very serious actually because he could have physically restrained me because mm -hmm. by the way if i was a stalker then you, sh you should be restrained i should have been, <laughs> he shouldn't have listened to me saying because that's exactly what a stalker would say i'm a journalist so i'm going to, I think, compose a short note to the judge in the morning, uh, letting him know that, that the lawyer may get up and say I was stalking them or harassing them, or maybe he only lies to people who don't know the full backstory. So I'll They like giving interviews to people who like them, and they don't like giving well, people answering questions that they don't like. That's exactly right. They're not used to it. You see, they're not used to it. They're, using, they're used to getting these softball interviews. Michael Mann is used to having people fawning over him and telling him how fabulous he yes. is. And now suddenly somebody's asking him very awkward questions about his treatment of Judith Curry and others. And my God, he doesn't like it. There was a Washington Post reporter in the courtroom uh, last week, or maybe at the beginning of this week, Oh, big falky for from Michael Mann had a massive falky for him. Like it was like, oh, okay. And nobody uh, who's listening has no idea what that means. Film has you know. So big hello to the person. Not chatted away in the courtroom. They conducted an interview in the courtroom and then they walked out into the corridor and conducted he another. He knows them all. Sorry, we've already seen in the court. We've seen many, many really happy, chappy friendly emails between Michael Mann and the New York Times' Andy Refkin, who was their science... No, their Enviro, chief Enviro. Oh, their Enviro. chief Enviro guy. And they were massive, another massive bromance along with the Leonardo DiCaprio romance. We need to finish up for this evening. Thank you so much for listening. Tomorrow's a huge day. Um, we're going to have the final story being told by Mark Stein, by Rand Simberg, and by the plaintiff. We're going to have final arguments and the jury are going to be asked to deliver and we may get a result tomorrow. I think it's unlikely. I think the result will come on Thursday. But we will keep you posted. Um, we've been here from the beginning and we'll be here to the bitter end. Thanks. Bye. Climate Change on Trial is a project of the Unreported Story Society. It's presented by fellow McAleer and Anne McElhaney. Written by Anne McElhaney, fellow McAleer and Virginia Abram. The executive assistant was Annalisa Pesek. It's edited by Peter Kelly and produced by fellow McAleer and Anne McElhaney and Magdalena Segeda. Reenactments were directed by Kiff Scholl. Nico Garfolo is the engineer. Roger Pilkey Jr. was played by Jeff LeBeau. John B. Williams was played by Keith Allen. Ross McKittrick was played by Bruce Nozick. Mark Balin was played by Kiff Vandenhovel. Patrick Coyne was played by Scott Victor Nelson.